Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome along as we gather to worship uh, the Lord together in our evening service. Uh, this evening, Saab will be preaching to us from uh, Luke 23 on the series of on the theme of uh, the crucifixion as we think of Jesus' journey to the cross, especially at this time at Easter. As we build towards Easter and dwell on all that Christ has done for us, we're mindful really of the cost, of what it cost them, of what it cost him as he gave his life for us, an innocent man giving his life for the guilty. And that message should radically transform us. It should change our lives. And as we look at the passage tonight in Luke 23, uh, there is a, a scene with uh, the two thieves either side of Jesus on the cross. And it says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal looked and rebuked him and said, don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. One thief truly realized the just punishment for his sin, and that was death. And that's true for us today, that when we realize our just punishment for sin is death, then we can truly come before the Lord and say that we have nothing to give him. But when we admit that, when we admit that to him, that we can receive what he has done for us, as he has paid for our sins entirely, that we can come before him and receive the forgiveness that he gives us. And then gloriously, like the thief on the cross, we can not just receive forgiveness, but we can know that we will be with the Lord in paradise. What a wonderful Savior we have. Let's pray as we come to him this evening. Father God, we thank you for all that you have done for us through our Lord Jesus, that he has paid for our sins, that we can come before your holy presence and praise you. And so, Lord, we pray this evening as we come to you that we would come humbly, we would come expectantly, waiting to hear from you through your word, that you would speak to us and that you would change us and transform us to become more like the Lord Jesus. This we ask in his precious name. Amen. So the Bible reading is taken from Luke chapter 23, um, starting at verse 25. So if you have got a Bible, um, great if you can turn there. Um, we started this Easter series in Luke chapter 22 um, with Jesus and his disciples sharing the Last Supper um, as Jesus prepared his disciples for what he was about to do. Um, Jesus then spent time praying earnestly to his father on the Mount of Olives as he commit himself to his father's will. He was betrayed, just as he said, and then arrested. Um, last week, we journeyed with Jesus through his trial um, and even though Pilate found no basis for the charges against him, the crowd shouted persistently for the prisoner Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be crucified. And this is where we pick up the passage today, um, starting at verse 25 of Luke chapter 23. He, that's Pilate, released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. 
the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Lisa, thank you very much indeed for reading for us. Please do keep your Bibles open. It'd be a great help for me if you're able to follow along. Uh, Before I start, uh, let me pray. Uh, Father, as we come to your word this evening, pray that uh, by your spirit, uh, you'd be powerfully at work in our hearts. Uh, Help us to see the amazing things that you've done for us. Uh, Break down the walls of unbelief in our hearts. Drain away the fear that causes us to doubt and stir our hearts with love for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as Lisa said, we have indeed been working through a short series, uh, journeying through uh, the final hours of Jesus' life, uh, running up to uh, the cross. And I want to start by asking us a question uh, this evening. What would you say are the key components of the Christian faith. What's the essential kernel of our Christian faith? Now, one way to help us answer that question is by asking another question. Uh, If you found yourself at the deathbed of a friend who wasn't a believer, what would be the three things that you would tell them about Christianity. You're at the deathbed of someone who doesn't believe. What are the three things that you would tell them about 
the Christian faith, the three things they'd need to hear. Now, in our reading, as Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus speaks about the three things that lie at the very heart of the Christian faith, things that our non-believing friends need to hear, but also things that we need to hear as well. And we're going to look at at those three things. And the three things are uh, the reality of judgment, that's verses 26 through 31, the offer of forgiveness, verses 32 through 38, and finally the gospel choice, 39 through 43. Judgment, forgiveness, choice. So firstly, the reality of judgment. As we've been working our way through uh, this part of Luke's eyewitness account of Jesus's final hours, we've seen that judgment is everywhere. Uh, In the upper room, Judas Iscariot judged that Jesus wasn't going to be the political ruler that he had hoped for, and he betrays him. Uh, The disciples all judged Jesus to be too weak to stand up against the mob in the garden. The sentence that they passed was desertion, and they fled into the darkness. Peter judged that Jesus wasn't worth standing up for, and the sentence that he passed was betrayal. The leaders of the Jewish nation brought Jesus before them, and they judged what he had to say to be implausible, and they sentenced him to death. Pilate judged Jesus as not his problem, and sentenced him to be passed to Herod. Herod judged Jesus as not being worthy, and sentenced him to scorn. The mob They judged Jesus and they demanded that Barabbas was released and Jesus was sentenced to death. Up and down this account, we have judgment in all areas against Jesus, friends and foes alike. Luke writes and tells us that everyone judged Jesus. And then we come to uh, to our reading. Jesus has been tortured and beaten terribly. Uh, Historians of the time tell us that the punishment that Jesus had experienced up to this point, the whippings and the beatings that took place before crucifixion, was so brutal that the torso would be shredded, muscle would be pulled off bone, and you would have your innards exposed. Uh, Many people never made it past the beating. Jesus, here in unimaginable pain, is forced to carry uh, the beam of his cross up to the hill where he's to be crucified. But he's so weak He's so broken uh, that Simon of Cyrene, a passing by, who was there visiting Jerusalem, uh, was pulled out of the crowd to carry the cross beam for Jesus. Now, this wasn't an act of mercy on the part of the Roman soldiers. No, not at all. Their concern was that Jesus might die before they had a chance to kill him. They wanted him alive so that they could put him to death. And then there's the crowd. We're told in verse 27, uh, it's a large crowd. Some are there for the spectacle. Some are there to ensure that Jesus is indeed killed. And some are there because they're distraught, uh, the disciples and some of the women. Uh, The word used uh, in our reading, the Greek word is uh, for wailing, is to beat one's breast in anguish. Uh, It's a lament for the dead. They wail because as far as they're concerned, Jesus is a dead man walking. And in the midst of all this injustice, in the midst of all of this pain, Jesus speaks to the crowd. Take a look with me at verses 28 through 31. 
Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if the people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Jesus turns to the women who are so loudly and publicly lamenting and mourning and tells them that they're mourning for the wrong person. Do not weep for me. Jesus tells them that what's happening to Jesus, what's happening to him, means that the persons that they should be weeping for, the people that they should be mourning for, are their children, their offspring. The tears that they're weeping for Jesus are utterly wasted. The women weren't wailing for the sins of the rulers, the soldiers, the disciples, or the sins of all the people that meant that Jesus would take the journey to the cross. No, their tears are directed at the wrong person. Jesus says they should be weeping for themselves. But why? Jesus says there's a time coming. Uh, the translation here is a bit weak. It literally means uh, a key period in God's activity is coming when being childless will be considered a blessing. That's a huge thing for Jesus to say. The greatest honor for women at that time was to have children. Let me explain why. In a nation where uh, enemies are found literally over the next hill, uh, having children meant that you could have more people in the army. Children meant national security. More children meant that you had more people to work the land. Children meant economic prosperity. There was no state benefit. Children meant pension. So you didn't starve. But also having children was very, very dangerous. Many women died in childbirth. So women who bore children were honoured. Women longed to be a blessing. And yet Jesus says that a time is coming when having children will be the cause of unimaginable pain and grief because of what's going to happen to them. Judgment is coming. Uh, not the judgment that's come through a corrupt system that's caused uh, Jesus to be judged incorrectly. No, but God's judgment delivered by God himself. And here Jesus is citing Hosea 10. Uh, there God describes uh, Israel uh, as a nation that he's blessed. But what does the nation of Israel do? The nation of Israel tears around after the idols of the nations around them. And because of that, the judgment of God is coming. And Hosea says that when it comes, it will be so obvious, so terrible, so just, that people will call for the mountains to fall on them. Rather than face the judgment that's coming, they'll cry out for the hills to cover them so they can avoid the wrath and the judgment that's coming. It will be so terrible that the women who've not had children will be blessed because they're not having to witness the horrifying impact of the wrath of God on their children. Jesus has told the ruling Jewish council that he's the real judge. And rejecting Jesus, the real judge, means that those who've rejected the judge of all 
will find them ex- find themselves exposed to the judgment of God. Because of what Jesus is doing, going to the cross, the women should weep for themselves. Uh, then in verse 31, Jesus says that if they, if they will do this when the wood is green, the one who is sinless, that's Jesus bearing the sins of the others, what will become of those who continue to rebel against God up until that final day of judgment? Those who continue to rebel, to sin, are the dry wood. And for them, the dry wood, on that day, will burn fiercely. Judgment is coming. And that's the first thing to lift out of Jesus' journey to the cross. Now, I wonder when I asked the question at the start of my talk, if judgment was one of the three things that you were going to mention to your non-believing friends. I guess for many of us, it's quite an uncomfortable topic. Uh, We want to tell our friends about the second point, about love and forgiveness. We can tell ourselves that the love of God is the one thing that people need to hear about and that judgment is is something that will cause people to turn away from God. Uh, Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that people don't need to hear about the love of God. They absolutely do. But there is a danger that if we just talk about the love of God abstractly, that we end up blunting the message of judgment. We end up accidentally, I think, making judgment a small thing. And there's a general sense in, in our culture today that, you know, if God is real, if God is there on that last day and he judges me, that, do you know what? I'll be all right. I'll be all right. God will grade on a curve and I'm all right. And, and ironically, that actually stops people from loving God. And a classic example of this is the now disgraced cyclist, Lance Armstrong, uh, who wrote this wonderful book, It's Not About the Bike. How prophetic that was. It wasn't about the bike. Um, And he writes this about uh, judgment, how he's going to be on that last day. And this is what he writes. Uh, I asked myself what I believed. I never prayed a lot. I hoped hard. I... I wished hard, but I didn't pray. Quite simply, I believed I had a responsibility to be a good person. And that meant fair, honest, hardworking and honourable. If I did that, if I was good to my family, true to my friends, if I gave back to my community or some cause, if I wasn't a liar, a cheat or a thief, then I believed that that should be enough. At the end of the day, if there was indeed some body or presence standing there to judge me, I hoped I'd be judged on whether I'd lived a true life, not on whether I believed a certain book or whether I'd been baptized. If there was indeed a God at the end of my days, I hoped he didn't say, but you were never a Christian, so you're going to go the other way from heaven. If so, I was going to reply, you know what? You're right. Fine. Such a small sense of the judgment of God. So he thinks he's going to be absolutely okay. He thinks that rejecting Jesus uh, is no big deal. 
that if Jesus rejects Lance on that last day, that he'll be able to shrug his shoulders and say, no worries, I'll just go over there out of your way. As if he has a choice to do that. As if he has a choice to select where he can go and where he's going to go is not hell itself. He has absolutely no sense of the danger that he's in. And Jesus says on that final day of judgment, when they see the wrath of God, when they see the cost of rejecting God and God's judge Jesus, people will be beside themselves with panic and with dread. That people will call for the mountains to fall upon them rather than experience the judgment of God. Ironically, not seeing God's judgment makes small the love of God. Not seeing God's judgment makes small the love of God. And that brings us to our second point. In the midst of all of this cruelty, forgiveness. It's verses 32 through 38. Having told us of the journey that Jesus uh, took on his way to the crucifixion, uh, we now get to the crucifixion itself. Uh, It's worth noting, isn't it, that unlike Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, which lingers long on the physical aspect of Jesus's death, uh, the gospel barely mentions the extreme agony of the crucifixion itself. It's just three words in verse 33. They crucified him. Uh, Indeed, in line with the Old Testament prophecy, if you've got your Bibles to hand, turn back to Isaiah 53, verse 12. Uh, We're told there of God's suffering servant, the one who would save God's people through suffering. That he would uh, be poured out to death and that he would be numbered among the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12 uh, reads... Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And here's Jesus. Prophesied hundreds of years before. Suffering terribly and being numbered amongst the transgressors. In crucifying Jesus amongst the vilest of offenders, the ruling elite have deemed that the Son of God be ranked amongst the worst of humanity. Uh, In verse 35 of our reading, as people watched on, the rulers sneered at Jesus. Literally, they turned their noses up, scoffing him. They understood who Jesus said he was, but they refused to believe So they just couldn't see, no, that they wouldn't see, that by staying on the cross, that was the only way that Jesus was actually going to demonstrate that he really was the Messiah, the chosen one. That the work of God wasn't to save himself. If he wanted to do that in the garden, he could have called thousands of angels to have rescued him, to dispense with the mob. But there he said, but how then will the scriptures be fulfilled? And here he is on the cross, fulfilling scripture. Uh, In our reading, it says the soldiers mocked Jesus, not with words only, but with actions, offering him wine vinegar. Uh, Many years ago, we went on a trip to to Ephesus. And uh, it was a lovely hot day. We potted down the the main drag 
uh, where there's a, a lovely building at the end. And as we were walking down with the guide, um, the guide took us off down to, one, down to one side through his little alleyway to show us something, and it was uh, the public toilets. They were very proud that, you know, Ephesus uh, 2,000 years ago had these public toilets. And it really was just a, a, a stone slab um, with holes carved in them um, for you to relieve yourself. And once you'd been to the toilet, you were presented with a bucket filled with wine vinegar and a sponge with which to clean yourself. The soldiers are not offering Jesus a drink. The soldiers are abusing Jesus. And even the stage itself, on the cross which Jesus is nailed to, there's a sign that hangs there telling the whole world that this is the king of the Jews. For everyone, it's clear that the man who's being crucified is indeed the king, the chosen one, the Messiah. And in the midst of that rejection, rebellion, and that utter hostility, Jesus' words are truly remarkable. Uh, just as it was prophesied in Isaiah. Take a look back at Isaiah 53:12. Uh, Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. And here's Jesus saying in verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. The people who are committing the most horrible of crimes against Jesus, the Son of God, and he's there praying to his Father, Father, forgive them. Uh, the danger is, as we, as we read this text, we, we abstract ourselves from it. We can't really see ourselves in what's happening to Jesus. We weren't there physically to drive the nails into his hands and his feet. We weren't physically present, jeering. We weren't carrying off Jesus' clothes as he hung on the cross above us. But just a short period of reflection, surely, and we can see it's our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. Our sin, we were there. We failed to love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. We were there. We failed to love our neighbour as ourselves. We were there. These words of Jesus on the cross declaring forgiveness to all those who would receive it are actually a huge comfort, aren't they? They really are. Because forgiveness is something that the world so badly needs, but appears structurally incapable of receiving. Uh, think about this. In the, in the 1960s, uh, there was an ethic, wasn't there, of peace and love that swept the globe. And the church found it very hard uh, in that time uh, to speak on the topic of judgment. However, speak about forgiveness and the world loved it. The culture refused to accept that anybody could be judged by God but believe that anybody could be forgiven by God. God is love, many would have argued. But now, we live in a cancel culture, don't we? And the culture decides if you've crossed a line, 
uh, if you've offended the culture, once they've determined that you've done that, you're cancelled. The culture is all now about judgment and not about love. You can be cancelled in the school playground if you offend the sensibilities of the in-crowd. You can be cancelled for something you wrote on Twitter 15 years ago. I don't know if Twitter was around 15 years ago, but you know what I mean. Uh, the cartoon books of Dr. Zeus uh, are being cancelled because they contain harmful stereotypes, apparently. The notion of judgment is everywhere. It's all pervasive in our culture. But the beauty of forgiveness and of reconciliation is just nowhere to be found. And because that's how the culture is, because that's how the world thinks, the world projects that thinking onto God. And the world thinks that therefore God will behave the same way toward us. People can feel that they've been sentenced and excluded by God for even the smallest rebellion, that God will somehow cancel them forever, permanently, and that there is absolutely no way back for them. But Jesus says to those who are killing him and mocking him, that even for them, who our culture would cancel, forgiveness is possible. And that's life-giving. Our friends who don't believe need to see not only the eternal, the, yeah, the eternal and existential reality of the danger that they face, they also need to see the rivers and oceans of forgiveness that God offers to cover their rebellion. And for those of us who believe, we need to see more and more of both of those things. We need to see more and more of the wrath that we have been saved from And we need to see more and more and more of the love that God has for each one of us. The more that we can see those two things in tension at the same time, the more we will grow in our Christian faith. The deeper down our roots will go. Now here we also see a a remarkable exchange, don't we? Jesus uh, came and he lived the life that we should have lived. Loving God perfectly and loving his neighbor. And Jesus is the only person to have done that, to have lived perfectly. And in the end, he should have heard his father say, well done. Well done. Come into your father's rest. But rather than hearing those words, Jesus took upon himself our rebellion. Jesus, the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the chosen one, took Our place amongst the worst of the world so that we could be lifted up and received as God's children. On the cross, Jesus cried out, didn't he? I thirst. And he was offered waters of death so that you and I might have rivers of living water running through us. And even though It's the true king. He put down all of his heavenly possessions and on the cross allowed the soldiers to take away all of his earthly possessions so that you and I might inherit a dwelling place that was rightly Jesus's. That's what we need to see more and more of. The judgment and the forgiveness. And that's what our friends need to see. The judgment and the forgiveness. Luke then shows us what's required. 
and what the result is. And that's our final point. It's the call to a gospel choice. Take a look with me at verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our, de- what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus hangs there between two criminals. And these men have clearly heard the claims that Jesus has made of himself. They've heard the sneering of the rulers, the mocking of the soldiers and the cruel irony of the sign nailed to the cross. And the first criminal sees only himself and the situation that he's caught in. If you really are the Messiah, save us. The other criminal has an utterly different notion of being saved. The first criminal sees the judgment that's befallen him as being completely unjust. That the sentence he's received is in some way much bigger than the crimes that he's committed. He has no sense of remorse for the things that he's done. He wants just to be lifted out of the situation. He wants God to come through for him and deliver him from the trial that he's in. Surely, if Jesus is the Messiah, this is just the sort of thing that Jesus should be doing. The other criminal has seen Jesus pray for his persecutors. He sees that Jesus is innocent and he sees that Jesus really is the king. In verse 30, he reminds the other criminal that the judgment that they're getting is from God. And the more that he acknowledges that, sorry, and more and more he acknowledges that they are indeed guilty. They are guilty. He recognizes that he is a rebel before God. He knows that he should fear God because the judgment that will befall him through death will be much worse than the crucifixion he's now enduring. He's heard that forgiveness is offered out by God. And as the two men face judgment, having heard the offer of forgiveness, there are really only two possible responses. Either we respond like the first criminal or we respond like the second. And the response of the second criminal is clear, isn't it? He repents and he believes. The second criminal, he repents. He, he recognizes that he has indeed been rebelling against God. He fears God. He sees that Jesus is indeed the king and asks to be part of God's kingdom, of Jesus's kingdom. He says, doesn't he? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. The criminal believes. He repents and he believes. He turns away from the things that used to have his affections and he now lays his affections and his trust on Christ. He doesn't want Christ because he thinks that Christ is going to get him out of a tight fix. He wants Christ just because of who he is, just because he's Christ. And any response to Jesus that isn't like the second criminal is to reject Jesus. Anything that isn't to repent and to believe is to reject and to deny Jesus. 
to not accept Jesus, no matter what the reason, is to reject him. And to reject Jesus is to find oneself exposed to the judgment and wrath of God. And Luke reveals to us, doesn't he, the beauty of the work of Jesus on the cross. Take a look with me at verse 43 where he says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. I just want to say four really quick things about that. Firstly, the second criminal's not saved by anything that he's done. He's absolutely not merited or earned his salvation. He's a criminal. Uh, The Greek is evildoer. Uh, He's not had time to find himself on a church rota to help people in the community. Uh, He's not been baptized. He's saved by trusting in Jesus, having faith in Christ. He's saved by faith alone. Secondly, he's made right with God. In verse 43, Jesus says to the criminal, he'll be with him. The criminal has been saved by pure grace. It's a free gift extended to him by God, by God's goodness. Thirdly, the criminal's been saved by trusting in Christ alone, not trusting in Mary, not trusting in the prophets or their favorite online preacher. No, he's saved purely by Christ alone. And fourthly, the destination for both of them is paradise. Uh, Paradise, uh, the Greek word is the word that's most often translated in the Bible as garden. And most famously, the Bible starts in a garden in Genesis where Adam and Eve live face to face with God. And it's also used again at the end of the book uh, in Revelation as the garden city where the tree of life is found. Jesus promises that eternal place of believers, that garden paradise for everyone who believes in him. So to sum up, it's worth reflecting just for a few moments, isn't it, on those uh, three things that Jesus speaks about here. Firstly, judgment and the wrath of God. So some questions. Do we believe that God will ensure every wrong is paid for? That every injustice, every cruel action, every act of neglect, every careless word will be paid for. Do we have a sense of how terrible it will be to fall into the hands of God without repenting and experience the judgment of God? I wonder, do do we see the truth about just how holy God is? Which means that he takes our rebellion seriously. He takes our sin and everyone's sin seriously. Secondly, on forgiveness, uh, do we see the incredible sweetness of forgiveness that's offered out by Christ. Do we see that? Are we able to taste the goodness of that? Does our heart skip when we dwell on the joy that comes from knowing that through Jesus's forgiveness that there is now for us no condemnation? As we see the scale and seriousness uh, with which God sees our sin, is our heart melted as we think of the amazing gift of salvation? That God offers each one of us freely 
And as Colin mentioned earlier, do we see the enormity of the cost that was paid for our salvation? Uh, Thirdly, choice. Some questions again. Do we see our need to choose Jesus? Uh, we, We must choose Jesus before we die. If Jesus on the cross took the judgment we deserve, offers us forgiveness and eternal life face to face with God. If he does offer that, if that's true, we believe that. Why are we slow in speaking to others about Jesus? Friends, the most terrible thing in all of history happened on a hill at Calvary. The son of God himself was butchered. And that was done because that was the only way that God could have you and me with him through all eternity. It's a profound thing that was done to reveal his love for each one of us. What's offered to us is beyond anything. It's beyond compare. And so can I ask you, in your Christian life, are you settling for a small life? Have you lost sight of the amazing thing that God has done for you through Christ? Has your vision of what God offers of paradise face to face with him through all eternity, has that become black and white and low definition? Are your affections for Jesus dimmer now than they were a year ago, three years ago, ten years ago? C.S. Lewis, in his uh, famous essay, The Weight of Glory, um, speaks about how we can oftentimes just get distracted, can't we, uh, by the things of the world, the joys and toys around us, uh, the treasures and pleasures that seem to distract us. Uh, and he writes this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So friends, can I encourage you, look afresh at the judgment Jesus reminds us of. Dwell on the forgiveness and the salvation that Jesus offers. And the more that you can do of those two things at the same time, the judgment and the forgiveness, the more that you can do that, the more that your heart will be filled with thankfulness. And the more that you'll be able to hold in your mind and in your heart the promises of paradise, the promises of living face to face with God. And that will give you the power and the strength that you need to see you through the trials that you're journeying through today. Don't you want that?
Let's pray. Uh, Father, help us uh, hold uh, the truth of your righteous judgment in a right tension with your incalculable love for us. Where our affections for you have grown dim, please fan into flame our love for you. And Father, help us, help us to live really big lives for you. Might we never settle for small things. Fill our hearts with thankfulness for all that you've done, that we might live lives that glorify your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.